Thursday, May 15th. This is Slate's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And how about India? Thank you, India. Well, later on, I will be talking about the India election. But I do want to thank India for their clock diversity program. India Standard Time is a half hour off the rest of the world, or maybe the rest of the world is a half hour from India. I hate to be clockist. So if it's 1.53 in New York, it's, you know, 6.53 in London and 7.53 in Stockholm and 11.53 in Bishkek. Very, very uniform. But in India, it's 11.23. Same latitude as Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, but a half hour earlier. So cool, which really helps if you want to set up your wall of world clock times, right? If you want to show that you're this really important international multinational corporation or this international hotel or this international house of pancakes, and you want some minute hand diversity. You know, it's like in a Broadway musical, you want to dress the stage. So when the chorus belts out, Oklahoma, okay, there's one guy standing there, but there's a chorus girl on a wagon and one dude's on another dude's shoulders and there's someone kneeling on the ground. It's all working on different levels. And that's India doing the international dateline version of jazz hands at half past the hour. Of course, you also have Nepal, which is 15 minutes ahead of India. So that's like double jointed elbows turned inside out doing jazz hands which is kind of cool, but also kind of disgusting. On the show today, we will delve into Idaho GOP gubernatorial politics. Last night, there was an awesome debate where one candidate described himself and the other candidates this way. And you have your choice, folks. A cowboy, a curmudgeon, a biker, or a normal guy. We will talk to the moderator of that debate, ask if she had to tase anyone. And in my spiel, the long, long process of building the 9-11 Museum, is it okay to question the delay on this of all days? But now, Indian elections. In India, which I think by law I must refer to as the world's largest democracy, they finished voting earlier this week and will finish counting that vote on Friday. Widely expected to be the next prime minister is Narendra Modi, a Hindu nationalist who heads the party known by the initials BJP. Modi, by the way, is banned from travel to the USA, though that ban will be lifted when he becomes head of state. Joining me now is Shikha Dalmia, Reason Foundation senior analyst who covers India, who is Indian, who just came back from India. So you're very well qualified, and thank you for being on. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Mike. So I kind of joked about India being the world's largest democracy, but I get the sense that India is not that much of a functional democracy. Is that fact, that perception driving a lot of the pro-Modi, pro-BJP support? Well, the Indian democracy is functional in the sense that, you know, it's actually quite a feat. Uh, there are about over a billion Indians and uh, about 400 million are going to the polls. So just conducting the whole exercise is a remarkable feat, and it takes several weeks actually to complete it. What's in trouble is not the Indian democracy as much as the Indian economy. And that's the driving issue in this current election. And Narendra Modi, the Hindu nationalist whom you mentioned, has exploited that concern about the economy to his advantage. Is he a real reformer or does he just talk a good game? He has risen to fame by touting a fairly robust agenda of Hindu supremacy. 
he was the chief minister of the state of Gujarat, where his first, the first act after he got elected, within the first few months, there was a massive uh, pogrom of Muslims, which, you know, it's a, a, a little unclear what his role was in it. Some people actually blame him for fueling it. But what is without doubt the fact is that it happened on his watch. And it was a horrific, horrendous incident. Since then, he has actually resuscitated his image a little bit. He turned Gujarat into something of an economic powerhouse. And those twin credentials that this is a Hindu nationalist who was responsible for the growth of Gujarat is what's giving him the current cachet uh, in, the, in the elections. And the travel ban from the United States, that was because of of his role or perhaps the lack of role of uh, the government forces that he controlled during that time where for days thugs roamed the street. This was after a horrific uh, fire on a railroad car which, uh, which killed many um, Hindus, and then it was said to be in retribution that many Muslims were killed, right? Right, that's right. It is actually uh, a little unclear what the cause of that train fire you mentioned was. There is some good evidence to suggest that it was not arson by Muslims, that it was actually some kind of a short circuit within the train itself. But setting that aside, Modi went, you know, took to the streets and started making some pretty incendiary speeches. He allowed the bodies of the, uh, you know, the Hindus to be brought into the capital of Gujarat and be paraded around, which was widely considered to be a pretty incendiary action. And then he kind of, the police, the local law enforcement held back as the retribution against innocent Muslims went on for several days at end. Uh, and in the aftermath of this incident, not only the United States, but a lot of European, Western European countries uh, banned Modi from traveling uh, to, their, you know, to, to their borders. And the reason is that in the United States, in the U.S. has policies against issuing visas to people who incite religious violence or have been in any way involved in religious hatred. And so that's the reason that Modi was denied the visa. And the ban actually has not been lifted. It will be now because, you know, it would be a little ridiculous, I suppose, for America to have a ban against a duly elected prime minister of the most populous democracy in the world. Do you think the ban was fair? Uh, yes, I think it was fair. Um, and I think in Modi's case, uh, you know, there is no doubt that on his watch this pretty awful, grisly incident happened. So I think it was OK. OK, let's talk about his Hindu nationalism. I get the sense he's definitely not as radical as, say, an Ayatollah in Iran with uh, is an Islamist. But could you compare him, say, to an American conservative Christian who talks frequently about Jesus? Is there an American politician he compares with? Or is it, you know, more uh, religious than even... Uh, Michelle Bachman or Rick Santorum? Oh, I mean, there's no question about it. He's, you know, far more shrill than the shrillest, uh, you know, um, Christian, white Christian politician in America uh, who's in the mainstream. I mean, setting aside like the fringe element. Yeah. But to be fair to him, he has not run this campaign on the Hindu nationalist agenda. And it is a remarkable feat that he has pulled off that he used to be viewed from the prism of this violence against Muslims that happened in his state. And now he is 
largely viewed from the prism of an economic reformer. And uh, the reason he has pulled this off, built this feat off, is in the last at least two or three years, his speeches have emphasized growth and development in India, and uh, you know, and speaking to the economic aspirations of Indians. He's also very clever. Even though he's running on this economic platform, he actually has never abandoned his Hindu nationalist agenda, and he has never actually apologized for the Gujarat episode, the Muslim massacre that happened on his hands. And he uses symbolism to communicate with his more hardline Hindu nationalist uh, base. So, for instance, you know, he will not wear a Muslim skull cap when he visits Muslims. So there are he uses all kinds of symbolic means to reassure his. Hindu base, that even though he's not making their concerns, his primary uh, agenda, that they are very much there. Now, here's the selfish question, but this works for every country. When there's an election in the U.S., the Indian media says, how will this affect India? So that's my question. How will, it's not inevitable, but it's seen as widely likely that Modi ascends to the prime ministership, his party takes control of the Congress. How will this affect America? So the first thing that's going to happen is that you know, what kind of diplomatic treatment should uh, Modi get? Should he be given the kind of red carpet that was extended to, you know, the previous prime minister, Manmohan Singh, who, if you recall, was the first state dinner uh, was given by Obama in the honor of Manmohan Singh. Right. Now, you know, I, I mean, I assume that's not going to happen with Modi, which is going to be terribly insulting for a whole lot of Indians. And America's reputation in India, if Indians see their duly elected leader as being, you know, insulted and humiliated by America, is not going to go down well with a lot of Indians. So all of that is going to be up in the air and will have to be redefined as you go forward. Shikad Almiya, Reason Foundation senior analyst, knows a lot about India. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Welcome to the Idaho Debates, a look at the candidates on the 2014 primary ballot. Hello and welcome to the Idaho Debates at the Idaho Public Television Studios. This is the last of nine debates we've hosted before the May... I didn't know I'd have such strong opinions about the Idaho Republican governor's race, but I do. We all do. If it was just Governor Butch Otter against challenger Russ Fulcher, a conservative state senator, I would guess that not many people outside of Pocatello would be paying attention. But then there was the presence of two other candidates, Harley Brown and Walt Bays, and things got crazy, and it became a YouTube sensation. And there, refereeing the whole thing was Melissa Davlin, co-host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. Hello, Melissa. So I read the rules of this debate as set out by the League of Women Voters, and they said that it was open to anyone actively campaigning. And sometimes people who run debates have a threshold for if you're polling at like 4% or 5% to exclude some people who have no chance. But why wasn't that the case in this debate? Governor Otter has insisted for many election cycles that if he is going to appear in a debate, then everyone who is on the ballot in that election, whether it's the primary or general, also be invited. They don't have to intent, uh, attend, but he wants them to be invited. And so in this case, that included uh, his, his, a very serious challenger, uh, Senator Russ Fulcher, and uh, two candidates, Harley Brown and Walt Bays. Um, they would not have otherwise met our requirements for the debate, which includes actively campaigning and, and uh, appearing at um, different campaign events statewide. Uh, but because the governor um, insisted as a condition of his appearance on the debate, we went ahead and um, 
and extend the invitation to Mr. Bays and Mr. Brown because we felt it was important uh, to put this debate on. And is Governor Otter just this huge believer in public discourse? All right, I'll drop the pretense. Obviously, Governor <laughs> Otter wanted to sort of, I don't know, like he would be the Tootsie Roll inside the uh, Tootsie Pop, and he wanted to surround himself with the hard candy coating of these two other guys who were going to maybe at least take up the time that Fulcher could be uh, attacking him, right? You know, a lot of people are saying that there is a story behind this that uh, that that he told us last night and that he gave me permission to um, to share. Harley Brown is a perennial candidate. He ran against him when uh, Governor Otter was then Congressman Otter. And one night, Harley Brown showed up at a debate, and he was not invited, and he wasn't allowed to participate. And he got really, really upset. And uh, then Congressman Otter went outside and calmed him down, and he made a he says he made a promise to Harley Brown that whenever uh, he was on the ticket, that Governor Otter would make sure that he was invited to that debate. I made a promise to Harley Brown that day. Now, let me explain if uh, our listeners haven't seen Harley Brown. He wore a tie. Um, he wore a tie. He wore a tie. He also had a leather cap, a leather vest, a couple cigars in his uh, breast pocket. Is that a signature? Is he always going around with the cigars or is that new for this debate? You know, I don't know if I've ever seen him with cigars, but I have to say uh, it, it didn't surprise me. It kind of fits along with his character. Uh, you, you go to his webpage, and, and his photos are, you know, he's, he's sitting on a motorcycle, and he's wearing that leather cap and, and leather jackets, and so it, it kind of fits along with, with his personality. I don't like political correctness. Can I say this? It sucks. It's bondage. And I'm, not, I'm about as politically correct as your proverbial... Turd in a punch bowl. When he said, can I say that? That maybe wasn't just rhetorical, right? There was some, like, you guys knew that he was yeah. a colorful character. Right. Well, all, all candidates got a warning beforehand that if they said, uh, if they said anything racist, if they cursed, um, if they went way outside of decorum, that they wouldn't get any more questions. And, I mean, th- this, this has been part of Harley Brown's campaign. He uh, has what he calls Harleyisms on his website, and, and some of them are profane. Uh, many are sexist and racist. Everybody, Jews, uh, Polish people, uh, Irish, uh, Italians, uh, religious jokes and black jokes. And by the way, my wife screened that, and we took the real hardcore zingers out. We wanted to make it abundantly clear that even though he was invited and he was welcome to this debate, that that, that wasn't going to fly. And that, I mean, that applied to all the candidates, too. So if Governor Otter had, you know, started swearing, then he would have been out of the debate, too. <laughs> right. That had happened. But um, I also read that there was a 30-second delay put in just because of Harley Brown. Yes. Yeah, that is true. Walt Bays has a long Methuselah-type beard. He has, yes. I think he listed 77 descendants, direct or yes. indirect. And I should also note, um, he was wearing, he was tan, he was clad in, I think, an entirely brown outfit. But he also had his name patch on still, in case you forgot who he was. Yes. Just, yeah, just in case. I stand on principles. I went to jail for homeschooling. And uh, my kids turned out pretty good. I had four sons that made pro rodeo cowboys and one daughter. Uh, I've got 77 descendants. My wife and I had 16 kids, eight boys and eight girls. And I've got a lot at stake here. What was the hardest part of your job as moderator last night? I, there were a couple times where, um, where, where, I did, where I did struggle to keep a straight face. 
uh, I mean, because, I mean, let's not pretend it wasn't entertaining at some point. It really, really was. And, and the, the audience was reacting, and, and so I was trying to, to keep it on track. Um, there was a little bit of miscommunication between me and, and Harley Brown as far as how the timekeeping went, and so I felt a little bit bad about that. But, um, but I think, you know, I, I had the help of, of a great crew and a great producer and a great director, and the reporters were great. And so I think it went about as well as it could have, considering the circumstances. I think you laughing at times was beyond appropriate it was not only humanizing it was actually like i said before trying to you know be in the moment and respond to what was happening but was and i'm sure bruce butch otter liked it he wanted harley brown there and walt bays at the end said i want to thank bruce otter because without him i wouldn't be here but what was, was fulcher ever upset maybe in parts where we didn't see him on camera was he ever rolling his eyes or reacting to the fact that you know he's trailing in the race he needs all the time he could get and these two and these two dudes are taking up his time you know he did express he has expressed frustration in the uh the press that this is the only debate that he and governor otter uh, are appearing in together uh he's he's challenged governor otter on that uh he says that governor otter is is running from the issues um and and i mean he even gave an interview just today saying how kind of frustrating it is because he he's trying to launch a serious campaign and this was the only debate that they appeared in together um you know governor otter countered that he's he's busy running the state and doesn't have time for for all of these debates but but uh there there is that sense of frustration from uh senator fulcher's camp that um this at some points has turned into a sideshow when they're they're making a very serious run afterwards what reaction did you get from any of the candidates um everyone was pretty happy uh they they shook hands I, i think Everyone was generally happy with how it went um, because I think there was a lot of uncertainty from all of the camps about how it would go. It was the first time that all four candidates were in the same place at the same time, um, and so uh, we 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 got some we, we got a lot of handshakes from everybody. Uh, Harley Brown gave uh, one of the reporters one of his cigars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, who do you think is going to play you on Saturday Night Live? The executive producer said that I look like Amy Poehler's little sister, so uh-huh. if they could just bring her back for that, that would be fabulous. That would be cool if they did. I mean, this thing has really taken off. Uh, what's happened know, because of I it? I know, It's scary. You tell me. Has the reaction there been, oh, this is an embarrassment for the state of the party? Or is the reaction kind of what I felt like, this was fine. This was, I kind of want to move to Idaho and vote in this election. <laughs> you know, I, I've, seen, I've seen reactions all over the place. Um, people have, there, there are some people who are annoyed uh, and they're calling it a sideshow. They're calling it a circus. Um, there are people who are focusing on the, the exchanges between. So the reactions have been all over the board, uh, but but I, we've generally heard really good feedback, which which makes me happy because, like I said, this could have gone so many different ways. Idaho Public Television's Melissa Davlin, who, let's face it, won yesterday's <laughs> Idaho Republican <laughs> debate. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much. And now, the spiel. The 9-11 Memorial and Museum opens today to families of victims, to dignitaries. It will open to the public next week. It looks like, from what I've seen, very evocative and instructive and affecting. 
I cannot actually wait to go. Although waiting has been the operative word for some time. So Ground Zero recovery and cleanup ended a little more than six months after the September 11th, 2001 attacks. A memorial design was chosen and construction began in 2005. And then in 2006, it stalled. Michael Bloomberg, then mayor of New York, stepped in. He chaired the Memorial Foundation. Bloomberg, so far as I could tell, has been a driving force to get the museum and the memorial completed. I do give him credit. But he's also said, quote, history will not record how long it took. He may be right. And that is, I think, a shame. Events have an endpoint. They actually occur. And even if they take a long, long time, one day they are finally here. And when they arrive, that then is the natural time to note and discuss and revel and debate and say, well, it took a long time, but. But delays just float without finality. There was never one agreed upon time during the delayed building of the memorial to say, it's not here. The 10th anniversary served as an occasion to reflect on the fact that there was no tangible museum, no tangible memorial. But every anniversary also had other roles to play, like to comfort the families and to remember the tragedy. And this is the problem of assessing that which hasn't happened. What should we expect? What should we demand? When should we demand it? Progress is always measured against something, either in a temporal sense, like Education was cheaper in 1975, home ownership was less affordable in 2011, or against other groups. Infant mortality is lower in Serbia, test scores are higher in China. And that does not take place with that which hasn't happened. And the other problem is that when that which hasn't happened finally does happen, we're told now is not the time to discuss the delay. That's the conspiracy against that which hasn't happened. It's never the time. The 9-11 Museum took almost 13 years to build. The 9-11 Museum took almost 13 years. The Empire State Building took a year and a month to build. Yes, there wasn't the sensitivity or the commitment to history, but it got done. Perhaps closer to the World Trade Center is the Oklahoma City Memorial, open to the public five and a half years after the bombing of the federal building there. Or take Hiroshima, where over 100,000 people died after an atomic bomb was dropped in 1945. But by 1955... The Peace Memorial Park rose near Hiroshima's Ground Zero, complete with instructional exhibits, memorials, and the Peace Memorial Museum. In a way, the total devastation in Hiroshima was actually an opportunity. The rebuilders in New York had to navigate around existing subway lines, but they also had to navigate around the commercial interests of Larry Silverstein, the World Trade Center leaseholder. Silverstein's a good businessman, and as such, he pressed his advantage. He received more in insurance payments than he spent on the lease. He sued airlines for three times that amount. He fought with the city and state agencies every step of the way. Two governors of New York, George Pataki and David Patterson, were unable or unwilling to control him. But today, we're told that blame isn't important, that delay wasn't important. I say take the new museum, revere it. I say believe Michael Bloomberg when he says these words. In the years to come, the 9-11 Memorial Museum will take its place alongside the fields of Gettysburg, the waters of Pearl Harbor, and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial as a sacred marker of our past and as a solemn gathering place. And I also say realize that the necessary function of commemoration and comfort was for too long denied to those who needed it. And that, like so much else with this memorial, is something we should never forget.
And that is it. Andrea Salenzi, who is part biker, part cowboy, produces the show. Andy Bowers, part curmudgeon, part normal guy, is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's not a curmudgeon. You can send us email at thegist at slate.com. Even more importantly is you can get the email that we send every day when the show's up. And you can play the show from the email. To sign up for that, go to slate.com slash gist email. You could subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. Reviews do help. The Gist is brand new, so we would like you to tell a friend about The Gist and engage in a little podcast proselytizing. It really helps us. A good place to listen, Fat Jack's Basement. After the wife's trumped-up restraining order, we have all been there, brother. Thanks for listening. And uh, I was living in Fat Jack's cellar because uh, my ex-wife had tr- give me trumped up uh, uh, restraining orders. I couldn't see my kids. It was a mess. And uh, Fat Jack's old lady, Fat Jack's wife, said, get this lunatic out of my cellar. He's starting a presidential campaign. I'm getting calls from the media and all this.